Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. We continue with the class of 1999 with one of the major animated films of the year. There were several really great ones. Uh, this this arguably is one of the best ones, if not the best one, although that's definitely debatable considering its competition. It is the direct feature directorial debut of Brad Bird. It is The Iron Giant. And here to discuss the movie with me is a filmmaker I've gotten to know over the past few years through his work. Um, his last film, Apocalypsis, I discussed with him last year in an interview. Please welcome to the podcast, Eric Leiser. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Brian. <clears throat> so I want to go ahead and start this a bit with a little bit of a history lesson. This is the first animated film that I've we've discussed on the podcast for the class of 1999. Um, okay. this, this, this year was, this year was pretty significant when it came to animated films. Um, just in the summer, which this, this was a, an August release by Warner Brothers, you had, um, Disney's Tarzan, uh, which came out in June. At the end of June, you had South Park Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. And in August, you had the Iron Giant. In the fall, Waiting in the Wings was the American release of Princess Mononoke, the great Hayao Miyazaki film, as well as Pixar's Toy Story 2. If the Best Animated Feature Oscar had existed this year, I it would have been, and those five were the nominees, I think you would be very hard-pressed to say definitively one of those deserved to win over the other. Because <laughs> that's a pretty impressive, in my opinion at least, that's a pretty impressive list of uh, films to be nominated. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> Formidable. Uh, Formidable year. Yeah. Uh, what, when did you first see The Iron Giant? Um, I watched it not long after it came out on, on video, but mm. we studied it when I was at CalArts quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and even Brad Bird came and talked about it. Oh, uh, nice. yeah. To character animation school at mm. CalArts. Yeah. And then, yeah, I just watched it here and there over the years to love it. Mm -hmm. And, um. Uh, Happy to talk about it. Yeah, this this. What about you? I so I didn't see it in theaters. Um, I I don't remember why I didn't see it in theaters. I think at the time it just wasn't necessarily something I was interested in. I did eventually yeah. see it on video a couple of years later, and I really liked it. And then I watched it again a few years later um, for. Uh, Sonic Cinema is a movie week, and it really just leveled me. Like, it, it really just had pretty big impact on me, emotionally speaking, as far as the story goes. And yeah. the thing that's kind of remarkable about this is that 
Brad Bird, like, they, they had to fight tooth and nail to get this a theatrical release. Because mm-hmm. at the time, Warner Brothers was seriously considering this for a direct-to-video release. And right. it's really a shame, and it's obviously, uh, it 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 obviously is a bit of a shock now to consider that Brad Bird is one of the uh, biggest names in American animation, certainly between The Incredibles and Ratatouille um, nowadays. Right. But the the idea that he had to struggle to get his first film, which is beloved. And, I mean, deservedly so. It's a really wonderful film that we'll uh, dig into here on the episode. Um, onto the screen, but that was kind of... That was kind of the nature of animation. It, it was starting to get to that point where if it wasn't necessarily Disney, or more importantly, if it wasn't computer animation... Mm-hmm. Uh, audiences were not really interested in it, and that's that's a real right. shame. Yeah, it kind of seems like I even remember that. It kind of seems like it was a retro flashback, um, kind of nostalgic piece. Yeah, because um, everything else was swamped by CGI. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he said Tarzan though was hand drawn, but uh, yeah. again, that was totally different. It had all these musical mm. numbers and cheesy stuff in it. Well, yeah, and the, it's it's the Disney brand, too. I mean, Target yeah. was a big hit that summer. I do remember that. You're right. And, yeah, you know, it I was. Mean, it yeah. was because it was, it was coming off of this era of animation where Disney was basically king with its animated yeah. musicals with Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Lion right. King, and then Tarzan was a piece of that. Um. And so other studios were trying to do figure out what they need to do in order to get a foot in the door as far as animation. And this this was one of the things that Warren Brothers did. And they were it, it was it was it's a shame when you figure Brad Bird um, before most people probably didn't really most people outside of film fans and animation fans probably didn't really know Brad Bird before The Incredibles or even yeah. The Iron Giant, but even before The Iron Giant, I mean, he was, he had directed some of the early episodes of The Simpsons, uh-huh. but the one thing I remember, and I didn't necessarily associate with him until I like found out that he had directed it many years later, was just a, was a wonderful short film that he had done for Amazing Stories, the Steven Spielberg-produced mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. anthology series called Family Dog. Yeah. And if you haven't seen that, it's it's really one... It. It's still one of the best thing. It's I do think it's still one of the most entertaining things Brad Bird has ever done as a uh, filmmaker. Yeah. I um, think Tim Burton co-produced that as well. And and that makes sense given and given the animation style that would make a lot of sense too because it right. does it does seem like a it it does seem like Tim Burton's style of uh his his visual style as well. Right. Yeah. Um 
so we'll dig into we'll, we'll get started into uh, the Iron Giant a bit here, and basically what this boils down to is it's a s- the the thing that I like about this movie. I I think one of the things that I like about this movie the most is it's it isn't an animated musical, which is I <coughs> which the more of those we the 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 f- less of those we get the i i think the happier i am uh, and yeah. we've kind of gotten out of that routine i mean disney will occasionally bring one out but nobody else really does that anymore which you know is perfectly fine by me even if music plays a big part in it this right. movie is essentially a throwback to 50s science fiction uh and it's mm-hmm. it's it's a cold it's very much set in the 1950s and it's basically about a robot that crashes down to the uh into a small town and befriends uh Hogarth the uh main character and the <clears throat> and the adventure that ensues with that mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. that's the essential story the the thing I like about this is the way one of the things I really like about this movie is the way Brad Bird in not just the story that he's telling, but the visual aspect of it is really playing with a lot of fifties sci-fi tropes. But yeah. it still feels very timeless in the story that it's telling. Yes, that's true. Uh I had that in my notes as well. Um, I was also wrote down, um, the, you know, the atomic age. We see the uh, in, in the classroom, the whole, you know, atomic scares, yeah. soft drop, it, uh, hide under the thing, uh, <laughs> film for eight millimeter. And you think of like the world, the w- worlds, and like the the day the Earth stood still, which mm-hmm. is a film I really love. And yeah, um, yeah they they have that similar uh, commonality. Well, you know, the general theme that comes out of that is like, mm. and then I feel like it does resonate even with our current time, but the oh, universal yeah. themes, the, like the fear of the unknown, like the fear of the other, mm-hmm. and like, you know, combined with like the power of childhood imagination. Yeah. And then like these themes of, you know, when you confront the other, you still have your free will to choose whether or not you're going to humanely engaged with that or mm. brand them as evil. And I think that's what's really strong about this film is that it brings in to the fore um, those really universal things with free will, mm-hmm. the, un- the, fear- the anxiety of the unknown and things like that and life and death and how to introduce that to something that uh, is new to, you know, introducing that to the other, like this, the things die and the things live. Yeah. Do like a childhood introduction. Mm-hmm. But I know that Brad Bird was really, he's really influenced by Pinocchio and like Bambi mm-hmm. also because he, he, he worked for Disney yeah. um, early on after CalArts. So yeah, it's this nice thing of like some of this cl- inspired by like the early classic Disney with like the science fiction films that were going on during that time during mm-hmm. the whole atomic scare. And um, yeah, and then. Uh, I'll go into some like deeper spiritual things when we get there, but yeah, and and, and you mentioned the uh, educational short that they watch in the s- school, 
which is it's such a brilliant parody yeah. of that yeah. type of that type of like you said the nuclear scare of oh I'm underneath your uh, ta- underneath you your desk uh, is going to save you from a nuclear You'll be okay. attack. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, which obviously that <laughs> you know, and which obviously that's not going to be the case. Um, I mean the in addition to like the fifties. Uh, sci-fi influence, like you mentioned, Day the Earth Stood Still, which I think is one of the big ones. War of the Worlds, certainly. Uh, once the military gets involved, or I mean, even both of them, when Day the, the Day the Earth Stood Still, uh, it's yeah. ultimately it's ultimately a uh, family story in the in the vein of ET. It it has right. that right. aspect of it too, where a a young boy gets a uh, Gets a friend from another, you know, from from another mm-hmm. world, and yeah. it's it's another thing where it's like he's Hogar is sort of like um, Elliot in ET, where it's like he's right. part of a community, yeah. he's part of a family, a small family, you know, with him and his uh, mother, who's voiced by Jennifer Aniston in the movie, but mm-hmm. at the same mm-hmm. time, he's also a bit of an outcast. And yeah. So and and that's one of the things that I really like about this too, and one of the things that it's it's it follows it it captures the same influences in terms of ET as far as being that type of story, but it you don't really think about moving on. You just you don't feel like this movie is copying ET. It's just following no. a very you know, it's it's following a blueprint that works, and I think that's an important part of making right. a story like this that to audiences 20 years ago and even audiences now is not as it's not as palatable to right. have this type of story and this type of set in this era. There's a nice thing about the the children in these stories where <clears throat> they have the initial reaction, which is fear yeah. and just being horrified, but then they make this jump where mm-hmm. they're able to empathize and have emotional connection. And then they're not sure if the outside world will be able to do that same jump, you right. know, because when, when people are in masses, it's been scientifically proven that they're less intelligent. It's the group sync and things like that. So when we're the child, um, has this innate intelligence and because they're young they haven't been inundated by a lot of programming and, and different societal pressures so they're able to be more human in a way and therefore like establish a connection even with this film mm-hmm. it's uh you know when they're playing and uh, they're going towards the town and he's like you, you're not ready yet and then i feel like a real sadness for for the, for the, you know, because he just starts to frown, then they walk back into the forest, and mm. it was, I felt like that was a whole debacle there. That was a very strong setup. Mm. Uh, I feel like Spielberg has a lot of that too, and um, even like other filmmakers that don't dealt with things that I like, like Elephant Man or David Lynch, yeah, uh, or like Edward Scissorhands. I guess Edward Scissorhands is a little more integration at first. Mm-hmm. Um, a little more success, but yeah, um, even Superman, which is obviously brought up in the film, 
Iron Giant that uh, obviously he's from another planet and people love Superman for what he does for society, but he still is other. They're still kind of afraid mm-hmm. deep down. Um, so those are like really, it really relates to today where there's so much ostracizing and segregation with the other people who are, aren't quote unquote us and then mm-hmm. how we treat said people. And also with, there's a strong anti-gun message. I feel like overall in the iron giant, yeah. um, anti-violence, like pacifist mm-hmm. thing, which is really important back then and today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, actually, and then of course, like, yeah, no, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, why was oh, and then I was so, just saying, so, like, a deeper thing. Oh, yeah, go. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So what I was going to say is, actually, I was just about to bring up the what you just said as far as, like, anti-violence, anti-gun, is that a friend, yeah. you know, my a roommate, our, our roommate um, was going in and out of the uh, room while I was watching the movie, and he mm-hmm. he he happened to walk in on one of the moments where Hogar is uh, trying to explain to the Iron Giant that you know he's trying to dissuade him from using violence against the military when they're trying to attack, and right, this right. whole idea of you can choose you know you have a choice here as far as what you want to do with. Uh, what's the exact line? Uh, let me bring it up, because it's a really wonderful line, and it's it's one that he he actually uh, he actually brought up really well. Just a minute, let me bring it up. Um, yeah, we. It's bad to kill. Guns kill, and you don't have to be a gun. You are what you choose to be. And right. that's that's basically what he's telling the Iron Giant in that case. And it's so true. And like you said, I mean, it's completely it's it's something that is it it works for the context of the time that it's in and the context of that particular moment in the story, but it's also it's also very applicable now and even even twenty years ago, but more so now. And yeah. it's just this whole idea is you can choose to you you can basically choose how to, how you're going to be in your life, you know whether right. you're going to be scared whether you're going to be scary, and it's up to you to, but it's up to you to decide what you want to do, and you have in in the case of the Iron Giant he has power to do. Like I mean, he could take out the military in in this in in no time if he wanted to. Like he, yeah. he could wipe out the military in this. He could wipe out the team in this if right. there's because they're scared for him. But he doesn't. He ultimately doesn't want to do that, and it's it's it goes to. I mean, it it fits right in with the references to Superman made in the movie. But mm-hmm. it's just in general, just this idea of somebody with tremendous power, you know, but how are you going to be, what's, what are you going to be in terms of responsibility in terms of using that power? And that's, that's, that's one of the things that really 
affects you watching this movie again is it's one of the reasons that I mean maybe it was almost inevitable unfortunately that this movie was going to fail with the box office but it is right. it is great f- I'm glad to see that peop- that did eventually find an audience yeah and I mean it just boils down to the fact that sometimes people Sometimes it takes a while for people to uh, latch on to a movie, and once they see it, I mean, it's you know, it wasn't the first time that Warner Brothers had that with a movie. Like they, they had with Shawshank Redemption in that decade too, sure. where it's like people didn't go see it in theaters, didn't go see it in theaters, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh wait, this is actually pretty great. <laughs> great. Yeah, it's that's it's kind of a hopeful thing. You know, mm-hmm. in my films that sometimes audiences build over time and it's a pleasant surprise. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a film that has strong re- uh, universal themes and it'll, and it's told in a singular way. Mm-hmm. Um, often people who are, see- who are searching for those things will, will find it. And yeah. then it kind of spreads that way where there's just a constant influx of films more than ever coming out. So, you know, release dates passes by so quickly. And then mm-hmm. often I just, there's just things on my list. I'm like, oh, I finally watched something I wanted to watch five years ago, you yeah. know, but, um, yeah, it's just a, a diligence and it is mysterious how things magnetically, um, build. But, um, yeah, I just think, also I really like the spiritual message where it, it presents free will. It's introduced to the Iron Giant through Hogarth early on, and that kind of sets up towards the ending where he, through his free will, becomes a Christ figure and that he sacrifices himself mm-hmm. to, you know, up in space. He gets blown to bits. And then the star in the sky that Hogarth sees um, kind of alludes to the star of Bethlehem, which I thought was very interesting. And then at the, you know, then we see that uh, at the Skafospital, I don't know how to say the Icelandic uh, uh, ice cap um, glacier that we see, and he's actually we see that he's resurrected. Oh yeah. Or like the yeah, the Iron Giant's resurrected at the end. So I like mm-hmm. the. As a, as a Christian, I like the Christ mm-hmm. uh, allegory thing, too. But it just kind of shows that um, there is Christ, and then there's people who are sacrificing themselves to save others and becoming Christ-like. And I, it was nice to see what you would call, I guess, an inorganic, or I don't know, life form, a metallic life form mm-hmm. um, from another planet. Uh, continuing on that that theme of selflessness and, and uh, kind of presenting sacrifice and uh, resurrection leading to the salvation of a sense. Um, mm. And it makes you think, like, how, how did the town react? How did, what was the, the, the day like after that for the town where yeah. people started to ask themselves like deeper questions? And I think they were. I think something like that would transform a little town like that. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, it, it's funny because I've actually been where I think 
he set the story, which is uh, Mount Desert Island in Maine, mm-hmm. and it's it's beautiful. Uh, and I love I love the the Bee Gees, the backgrounds, um, the the autumn. It reminds me of uh, Sleepy Hollow, Disney's Ichabod Crane. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of, yeah. of like those backgrounds, you know, these beautiful lush colors and these rolling, we call it countrysides. And uh, so I think for me, that's some of the stuff I still think is really strong, like the early Disney work. So I'm glad that Brad Bird put that in there. And yeah. also his use of staging and his like, aerial perspectives in the forest mm-hmm. uh, are really impressive visually. And um, of course, I see like the Spielberg influence very yeah. strongly there, yeah. um, which is great. Well, and the way he uses animation, I mean, it, immediately watching this film, I I really became, I really came to lament. I can't, you can't really say the death of cell animation as an American art form because cell animation does still happen. You just, you, you mm-hmm. don't hear about it the same way you hear about the big CGI. Yeah, movies. yeah. Um, right. But so the animation does still happen, and but its yeah. significance as American cinematic experience is really gone to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where it's like people. It it's it's one of those things where Hollywood learned when whenever technological advances occur, whenever movies break new ground when it comes to technology, Hollywood always mm. seems to learn the wrong, wrong lessons. And yeah. it happened with Star Wars, it happened with Jurassic Park, it happened with all right. sorts of movies. And it happened yeah. with uh, Toy Story and the, the emergence of CG animation where it's like... Mm-hmm. Now part of it is audiences just stop going to animated film uh cell animated films but part of it is also because of the fact that well hollywood stopped really giving them animated film cell animated films to go to so a movie that has something to offer in that like iron giant falls by the wayside and it's really a shame oh yeah and the thing that the thing that is so impressive. You were talking about you were talking about uh, Brad Bird as a bit, and his visual storytelling in this movie is just so wonderful. The way yeah, he the way he crafts this world, the way he the way he designs this world to where it's very it's very palpable in terms of it being realistic, but also a bit of a fancy, but not to the point where it's just, it feels out of time, out of step when with reality. And the way he, the way he uses, the way he uses camera angles, the way he uses, um, coloration to give the iron giant in particular weight. I mean, you look at the scenes in the forest with Hogarth and uh, the Iron Giant as mm-hmm. they're interacting and becoming friends. 
there's real weight to you can see the perspective the the difference in size between them pretty mm-hmm. effortlessly and you can see feel the weight that the iron giant holds right yeah I think he's definitely influenced by, like I was saying earlier, a lot of live action. Mm-hmm. I feel like a certain, a nice progression that's gone on in animation has been live action or live action inspired uh, directors um, bringing that to the fore in mm-hmm. animation. Where instead of just coming from continuing on kind of the cartoon world, which is fine, yeah. but when you bring in that element of cinematography, of, of editing tropes and things like that. I mean, one of the reasons why people were refreshed or delighted by the fantastic Mr. Fox besides was that Wes Anderson was coming from live action. So yeah. I remember when I was visiting Three Mill Studios and they were shooting, they're like, he's bringing out these like, details. It's totally overwhelming. He didn't have any knowledge of animation at that time, so he just where with animation we like it's so time consuming we like to like kind of cut corners and things like that but certain considerations are simplified that you wouldn't you would only do in live action but when you you do take when you do take the time to put all those tedious things in there it really makes a difference and uh, it can again it just can help just further immerse you into the story yeah um, which is what what you want uh, and plus like Brad Bird I know that he takes animation as an art extremely seriously, mm-hmm. and so do I. So we, we don't. When people say, "Oh, that was a nice cartoon" or something like that, it, it kind of irks me. Yeah. Uh, when when it's not uh, an animated piece that is trying to be cartoonish, you right. know, there's plenty there's plenty of that, and I, and I love that Porky Pig and Wacky Land and all that. It's wonderful, but for me, and you know, <clears throat> the filmmakers that we're talking about. There's definitely artists who are working in animation and um, they're very serious about their craft mm-hmm. and just filmmaking in general. So that's just, it's just nice to see that we're with Miyazaki with Princess Mononoke. I mean, it, it was, again, it, I, mean, I feel like that film is on a whole nother level, but yeah, um, <laughs> it, it gives that epic scale, mm-hmm. but it kind of feels like a Kurosawa film. You know, it, it it felt yeah. very live, live <laughs> Kurosawa, live action, these massive panoramas, even though the Iron Giant has some wonderful panorama yeah. shots, and I was really admiring. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's nice to see that that, that fusion is, is strengthening between the two. Yeah, and you, uh, and, and you brought up uh, Mononoke, and, yeah, I just rewatched that a few weeks ago, and I was... It'd been several. It'd been several years since I'd rewatched it, and oh my god, it's so breathtaking to watch. Yeah, it's the and it's so pertinent and, and timely, and it's, it's so. so yeah, and and the 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 universe is so, and the animation is just so immersive. And I think one yeah. of the biggest problems we have in as far as American audiences, as and this is in Disney's unfor- and Disney's partially responsible for this. A lot of responsibility, I think, for this. Even though you know, I don't know even if Walt Disney would have necessarily said this. Is that Disney's? Di- it feels like with Disney, and 
just animation in general with American <clears throat> audiences, it's so much just if it's animated, it must be for kids. This whole yeah. mindset that animation equals kids' movie. And it's like right. you're missing even with the even with the dark crystal, some people are like, Oh, is yeah. that for kids? It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you have to see the dark crystal. You have to just I watch mean, it. It's not for kids. Yeah. I mean I you know, it's like rewatching the Dark Crystal and even getting started on Age of Resistance, it's like right. it's for like I would put you know, it's not as good as the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's comparable right. in terms of how dark it is. It's like yeah, it's oh, yeah. not it's it's not just for kids. Right. And I mean, that's, and you, you know, you look at Monoke, that got a PG 13 rating. It's like that movie is not necessarily for kids. You know, mm-hmm. it's certainly not in the same way that no, yeah. way would be, or my neighbor Totoro would be as far as Miyazaki's work. But I mean, right. it's, it's, it goes to, and I, I think this is one of the reasons Unfortunately, that this is part of the reason why I think it ba- once once CGI animation really once Pixar and Blue Sky and DreamWorks really sort of figured out how the formula for CGI animation, it yeah. basically boiled down to oh well this is basically this these are new kids movies. And, yeah, and right. it's it's like, you know, but you look at some of, at least some of what uh, Pixar puts out. I mean, it's it's just as weighty, dramatically speaking, as live action as some right. of the movies that win Oscars. I mean, yeah. Iron Giant, I would put in that category too. Certainly, yeah, yeah, certainly. So it's a it's a constant. Irksome. Um, my my upcoming animated uh, series slash feature, Twilight Park, is this. Where to me as an artist, this is the ultimate magnum opus type Hooper mm-hmm. project, uh, where all my artistic skills are being pushed to the max. But there's this looming thing that at the end of the day, when it's finally done, God willing, some people are like, "Oh, you did like a kids animated thing." And it just it makes me quite uh, unsettled because, yeah. you know, to me it's there's the cinematic as- aspect, but also to me it's also like a moving painting as well. Yeah. And uh, so it's just something that I don't know if people will evolve to understand, uh, take it as seriously as it can as an art, not just for kids. Yeah, but there's this whole thing with with going back to pre-cinema, like puppetry. Mm-hmm. Puppetry was for kids, but much earlier puppetry was always about uh, is more satirical, and it was a, a public art form often that was used symbolically to criticize like government or mm-hmm. political parties, or to work through like you know shows giant mythology and, and different cultures and things like that. So it's always been for adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think kids came later on. It's just, it's also how distribution networks 
present animation. Like often you're going to find the animated things within family or kids. Yeah. Uh, the Netflix and things like that used to have like adult, but it's just that whole adult animation genre is usually put in with like really crude animation yeah. or so it, it's, it's strange. It, it's too bad. Um, but it's not enough for me to, it never would be because I disagree with societal thinking in a lot of ways, but I, I would like to see if there is a future an evolution and just taking animation seriously for adults because mm. they can get a lot they can get a lot out of it and they're missing great films like the iron giant yeah and, you know so definitely need more voices there yeah and i mean even you know and you you brought up wes anderson fantastic mr fox earlier i mean i would put owl dogs up there as well um, you know, when, when filmmakers like Wes Anderson and Linklater, who did Waking Life, and yeah. uh, Scanner Darkly, it's like they tried to bring adult right. stories to animation, but the yeah. problem is it's like those those basically got, they basically were, even though, I mean, with Anderson's movies, I mean, they got relatively wider releases. But mm-hmm. they were also considered art house films because the, right. that's the filmmakers that Linklater and Wes Anderson are. Yeah, and right. so right. I mean, it's it's unfortunate that like you, it's hard to see what could possibly break the mold. The only thing I can think of is if you ever were to get somebody like Pixar or you know even DreamWorks. But more likely, Pixar would have to do it to do something that was okay. So we're going to do we're going to do PG thirteen animation, and it's like we're going yeah. to do something more adult, you know. And right. you, know, you can do adult movie. You can do a dramatic adult movie in the realm of PG thirteen. Heck, Pixar's done it with like Up. And Wally, yeah. and I mean they've they've gone they they've gone pretty heavy dramatically speaking. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean the thing is, but the problem is, those studios are so associated with family entertainment that you would think that you you feel like those that type of story from them would just get you know pushed aside. It's like no, I don't want to see this from audiences. Give me, you know, give me Toy Story Five, you know. Right. It's like even yeah, that's the problem with the monopolization of of animation of just film in general yeah. and the homogeneity that happens because Disney's buying it, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And then independents are often pushed out of the center stage, so um, or just regulated, like you said, to the art cinema, which is. I've mean, been struggling. You know, I I so, will say I think I I will say I do think Sony probably came close to pushing the boundaries of like what's family versus something that's more I something that could be more for like teens and adults with Into the Spider Verse and the way right. that they did that but i mean that's still a superhero movie so it's like naturally families are going to be a little bit more interested in that than right. it was pg 
sucks, but at the same time, it's like you there's a movie that I mean, it's most people consider the best Spider-Man movie, and I can't really argue them with them on that because it's yeah, that's kind of the paradox is that animation is in the hybrid form. Yeah, is really thri- thriving. All the pe- all these films that these juggernauts that people love are all hybrid films. They have tons of animation in them. Yeah, you know, from like in-game and all those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just so, but they take and they take that seriously. So it's just strange when it's just purely animation, yeah. and then it gets taken down several notches. But when in off, and I knew that early on. And that's why my my core features up to date. Mm-hmm. Are hybrid films. There's live action yeah. animation. They know it. I'll get more people to watch it. Or now that I'm going into a fully animated thing, mm-hmm. and I'm going to a smaller audience again. So that's kind of frustrating because yeah. it's much more of an e- an effort. <laughs> it's much more work. And uh, but you know, as time goes on, as those considerations don't matter as much. As long as I make a strong work, yeah, it'll find its way eventually. It helps. Mm-hmm. I will say, before we bring it back to uh, the Iron Giant a little bit, um, I will say, you know, you, you mentioned your own work being hybrid of live action and animation. I will say one of the things I've always liked about when you use, when oh, you've used yeah. animation in those films is that it's not just for the sake of effect. When you use animation, right. it's something to do it's something significant to do with the emotional storytelling in the movie. There's a reason you're going with animation at that point in time right. in the movie. And that's one of the things that I really love about it. It's not just, oh, we were, I'm going to put animation in here just because. No, it, it has a yeah. very specific purpose for the storytelling. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then. Um, it was nice to see Brad Bird too when he's gone. He, I think he did one of the Mission Impossible, like yeah. the Ghost Protocol or something like yeah. that. It was nice to see a lot of, as an animator and watching that film in the theater, I thought he brought a lot of things from animation into live action, which mm-hmm. is wonderful as well. Just how he sees it from an animator's perspective. Yeah. Um, so. well, it's funny I didn't because... see his Tomorrowland film. Did you see that? I did but, see it. I over. I like. I have mixed feelings about that movie. Um, right. I I have mixed feelings about that movie overall. I don't think it was overly successful. But I mean, I definitely, I appreciate what he was trying to do with it. Um, I I love Ghost Protocol. I think it it is one of the best Mission Impossible movies still. Um, yeah. You know, and it's funny to be before we bring it to Iron Giant, though. It's like you brought up his live action work. You know, you compare what Brad Bur- you and you as an animator coming are seeing how he sort of he he sort of brings an animated sensibility and simax storytelling to his live action. You know, you compare that to what Andrew Stanton, who's uh, one Pixar's big directors directed Wally, finding the Finding movies. You know when he went to live action to do John Carter, that was considerably more homogenized. Now that was for Disney, right? But at the same time, it didn't take the chances 
that you feel like Brad Bird was able to take with the Mission Impossible movies. Yeah. yeah. Now, part of that is, now part of that is Tom Cruise, who is always up for big challenges when it comes to those movies. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, so it's really interesting to see though, to see and compare those two filmmakers who are predominantly known for an, their animated work working within live action and the difference in the way they approach live action. Exactly, yeah. Um, so to bring it to uh, Iron Giant, one of the things that I really like about this movie is that, and something that I was just really thinking about, is that with the exception of the character, the uh, federal agent played by Christopher McDonald in the mm-hmm. movie, you can't really say there's a bad guy in this movie. Like, you, right. you look at the military in this movie, and you don't really see them as villains. You see them as just, well, they're protecting the town from something that they don't understand. They don't, they're yeah. scared of. You know, and the fact that this this movie is really the idea that this movie has so much to say on a very, very weighty um, idea of fear and Mm -hmm. just fear in general that capturing that Cold War paranoia that was prevalent in those 50s sci fi movies that we mentioned earlier and bringing it to a story that is just fundamentally a a new variation on a familiar theme, in this case, E.T., the idea of a misfit child who's befriended by somebody from another world. Yeah. <laughs> and the the idea, and this is, this is one of those things where it's like you really, it's so frustrating to think of, Family movies, the idea that family movies are less serious because of the fact that they're more for kids is complete baloney. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, I, I think this is a fantastic movie. It, it's, I would, you know, and the comp- comparison to E.T. is not just from the fact that it's like they, they cover similar basic basic storytelling ground it's comparable because like et it's a legitimately great movie <laughs> yeah absolutely um yeah there's it's just some i don't really have to respond to that i just agree with you yeah um it's it's i don't know there's something about the DNA of the Iron Giant, where you've seen these themes. I mean, it's, it's, these are common universal themes, but they're, it's dealt with and it's presented in a way that's free from the cliche and pretension. Mm-hmm. And it's just very authentic emotions, which allows you, of course, as a viewer, to get lost yeah. in the role. And, um, and then just, it just has all the, it just, it's a great payoff. It leaves you thinking. Uh, it seems very contemporary today. Yeah. Um, you know what, what we're facing is the civilization, uh, or just as a as a planet. Um, you know, it's kind of making you think about industrialization and um, 
you know, uh, basically giant corporations uh, making massive decisions that affect all of humanity without mm-hmm. humanity having having a say uh, in in these things, these detrimental things. So, um, yeah, but I the, the non-villain thing that was also uh, in Princess Mononoke. Yeah, say that Lady. I forgot her name, but that basically she was just trying to protect her Mm -hmm. fort, you know, and like the lepers and the various people with disabilities that she employed, she was compassionate with them. Mm -hmm. Of course, she didn't have a great respect for nature, but um, she wasn't necessarily evil. So Mm -hmm. that's good where I think in Tarzan and some of the other ones you mentioned, there was definitely a villain. Oh, yeah. Um, So, yeah, it's just... (laughs) Again, and, and not only do I agree with those, the ethos of that, but also it serves the story again. Because mm-hmm. if there was a villain in the Iron Giant, then, it, yeah, I would have hurt that picture for sure. Yeah. Um, Sam and Princess Mononoke, I think, mm-hmm. it, yeah, it's dealing with life and death and rebirth. Mm-hmm. And that's important because some films just focus on, like, or, um, in the Never Ending Story, in the Age of Resistance, or the original Dark Crystal and things like that, there's just nothing. There's this entity that's coming that's going to swallow everything yeah. and drench the whole world in darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, and But, of course, there's the theme, too, of that there could be a life after. But those mm-hmm. things are kind of ab- abstract. It's nice when they can be delineated a little more. Um and just made it a little less abstract so that you can apply it to your own life because there are abstract forces and demands in this world, but you don't have to look very far to just to see like flat out evil things in this world, you know, yeah. and good things. Mm-hmm. And that you just see that through all stories, they're going to like Joseph Campbell or something like that, you know, the hero's mm-hmm. journey is that there's this battle that's going to be going on until a certain point, depending yeah. on what you believe. But right now we're definitely in an intense battle. And that, that drives storytelling, which is a way of coping and of gaining insight mm-hmm. into these, these deeper things. So any, any story that can deal with these things in a unique way to like the visionary director or, or a writer, mm-hmm. um, like a synergy with like a, a great book, like with Iron Giant that's adapted with like a really uh, kind of an auteur director like Brad Bird. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just really special. So that's why I think those films endure, where other films are just like, oh, these are like some powerful elements, like you said, they'll just like kind of mix them in there. Yeah. If they're not pers- not personalized and like intelligently explored, then it's just like, oh, another you know, good wins at the end of the day over evil story. And it's like, ugh, you know, yeah. where you got to have the dynamic in there, which gets back to the initial spark. It's like that mm-hmm. all coming from life, you know, yeah. however fantastic it gets going back to like, why do we watch films to begin with? Why do we spend so much time if you're a filmmaker making them? And then what's it all about? And how do they influence each other? Just like live action and animation influence each other. 
also realized influencing filmmaking and filmmaking itself. It's only been around a couple, what, 150 or something years, but it, it is influencer reality. Mm-hmm. That's what's really interesting when art forms actually influence reality. Um, so those are just really exciting things. Um, but like, like I said, it has to be in the hand of, I feel like, of an artisan uh, with a very specific vi- vision that they're passionate about that really stands the test of time. That's like, I feel like Iron Giant's going to go strong for a very long time. It's just a classic. Yeah, I, I think it it, it, eventually, it took time. I mean, sometimes great movies, it does take time for them to find their audience. I do think the Iron yeah. Giant finally did. I mean, I think especially it's... It's hard to it helped that Brad Bird went on to do Ratatouille and, and you know... Um, and The Incredibles. All, his, and yeah. The Incredibles, because <laughs> then people were like, oh, what else did he do? Yeah. Where if, <laughs> if that was like, if he made like one masterpiece and then kind of faded out, yeah. it might have gone more into obscurity. But because, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like he's not quite as strong as he used to be, but I always have faith that filmmakers will kind of come back. Yeah. But he had a really strong period there from this first film which is amazing first feature and the Um, thing is is like i wasn't a huge fan of incredibles 2 i i don't know that i necessarily felt like it was worth the wait but i i I am kind of glad that it exists and he kind of put it out there because then maybe he can get back to movies like ratatouille like the like the iron giant that are a bit more personal and that it yeah. might be something more along the line and, and something more fitting of the great artist that he really is. So, I mean, it's that's not to say The Incredibles 2 was a bad movie. It's not. It's a good movie. I just feel like for the 14-year delay that in between the first and the second right. one, I'm not sure was necessarily worth the wait, but it, you still see the visual flourishes, the visual imagination of Brad Bird, you know, it just doesn't quite feel as personal to him as the first one was or Ratatouille became or certainly the Iron Giant. Right. And and one of the and we you know, we were we were talking about the I this I think one of the things that does in that I do hope for, and one of the things I hope to see is the generation that grew up at least when the Iron Giant was released, or at least discovered it after it was released. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of that generation showing a movie like Iron Giant to their kids, and the idea of, like like you said, in Monoke is the same way, where there aren't really villains. There isn't right. really a definitive villain in this movie. It's people. There's themes. Looking, I mean, they're they're antagonists, but they they yeah. don't. They have their own. They have their own motivations that you right. understand where those motivations yeah. are coming from, and the idea that movies like Monoke, movies like The Iron Giant, can be passed on to they're these people's kids and they're not movies mm-hmm. and because let's face it there are even if you have bad days where like a bully is bothering you or 
you may have people in your life that mean you harm occasionally everyday life is not necessarily like that yeah and it's like even though these movies are dealing in fantastical ideas they're ultimately uh-huh. about a reality where good and evil does exist but it doesn't exist in the same binary good right. guy versus bad guy experience that you would get in the incredible or anything else it's more like it's more like ratatouille it's more like the iron giant where it's like you have people who are against you but at the same time you understand where those motivations are coming from sure it's more about like choices and yes every time you make a choice you you're kind of within the spectrum of light and dark you're kind of inching a certain direction mm-hmm. you know or some some days you'll become caught up in emotion and then you know you may be disrespectful to somebody or something and other times you're just you're not so inside yourself and you're just trying to interact with people and treating them with a lot of kindness and things like that so it's just it, that these are all choices that we we have to make a lot of people don't like that power it's too overwhelming yeah. and they try to you know put themselves in positions where someone they feel like someone else you know forced them or makes them and makes decisions for them, but it's really a false dichotomy. At the end of the day, everyone has to be responsible for the choices we make, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's nice when you see that in cinema. Yeah. You know? So before we, before we uh, come to a conclusion, there are a few other things that I really do want to point out with uh, Iron Giant that I, I brought up and that I have in my notes here. Uh, going back to you know when when the beginning of the movie hit that really it 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 made me it really feel it made me really miss cell animation. One of the things yeah. that I love about that is in is one of the things about the beginning that made me feel that way is the waves in the storm and the rain out at sea were just absolutely beautiful. And really right. striking yeah. and evocative, and then you have when when Brad Bird and his animators have it going into the sunrise. It's one of those things mm-hmm. where it's like, yes, it's easy to it's easier to do with computer animation, but it's like the mm-hmm. delicacy, the artistry that cell animation yeah, it's not has a, for cell things. Like cell animation is a physical thing; everyone's drawn is, the, for the human. Just, and then it's actual colors and yeah. just real. It's not it's not ones and zeros. Yeah, you know it's, it has weight, tactility, everything that pretty much what we're surrounded with in our day to day life mm-hmm. is that we we don't live in a ones and zeros reality. You know, yeah. um, so we're always going to be drawn to that. Um, I feel, but CGI's really tried to. to use simulacra and, and other techniques to make it seem like it's something that's tactile, but it's very rare that they can they can really pull it off. Yeah. Especially when it comes to, to weight and volume. It's like um where you would stop motion, that's why that's my preferred form because it's and actually actually using real light, real yeah. objects. But I also do love Celtics that love drawing and mm-hmm. um all the different layering that you can do. Yeah. Uh, 
like when it's zooming, when it's coming into Earth at the beginning, like you're talking about the sea, and then going into the sea, that's very visceral. Yeah. And it's just a great way to bring you into the excitement of the story and introduce the characters. Mm. Yeah, like we were um, like we were saying earlier, like there there's a lot of weight to this film. And there's a lot of weight to the images of this film. I mean, it's something that like like you said, like cell animation is so capable of in a way that even the best CGI is still has issues with. I mean, even a movie with even a even a trilogy that I adore, like the How to Train Your Dragon trilogy, it doesn't have the same weight to it as Iron Giant, and it's right. because of the depth of field that cell animation is capable of, and the fact that you feel you you feel the the artist's hand throughout the the process. Right. Um, one one thing I do want to bring up, I, I want to bring up the score by the late great Michael Kamen. Um, it's 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 a shame that he passed away when he did because as much as I love Michael Giacchino's work for The Incredibles and Ratatouille, I really would have loved to hear what Kamen did for The Incredibles. And I know Brad Bird right, was yeah. really wanting yeah. to use him for The Incredibles. And he ended up using Michael Giacchino, who did brilliant work for him. But Michael Caine yeah. is one of those film, one of those composers who, I think, because of the fact that he passed away as early as he did, and you uh -huh. have other ones like John Williams who are still going, um, uh -huh. he he's kind of been forgotten by a lot of right. people, and it's a shame because he hit for a good portion of my life at least you've got all these fantastic scores by him and he one of the things that is really great about this is he he captures that sort of et sensibility to this story but it's ultimately yeah. it ultimately has its own voice yeah yeah i agree it's really important and also also just when they chose to use music is important too. It wasn't smothered over the whole thing. Um, I also like it was just when there was a score, it was, it was really potent. There was no Disney pop stars and yeah. you know <laughs> weird songs. There, it was just like more traditional filmmaking, and yeah, um, that was really nice. Well, the thing is, you, you and me, like I love. In animation, when of course I love music because when, it, when it's done right and it comes in, it yeah. uplifts everything. But I also do love just to hear the sound mm -hmm. of objects. You know, um, I think it's even more important than live action too because you really want to add that sound texture, tactility to to things yeah. to further bring you into this where. Um, where when it's just kind of one music cue to the next in some of the more mainstream uh, films, it's just so saccharine and mm. it's so di it's so distancing. And what you what you don't want is more distancing in the animated picture because it's already not you're already not looking at humans most yeah. likely. You know, 
or an extremely stylized thing. Right. So you want to do everything you can to to bring people in and have entryways where so it doesn't just become like little dancing things. With, you, you, you know, um, so I feel like yeah, Iron Giant was strong in that way. Yeah, it's it's judicious choice of when the music came in and then when it was just left out. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to always be humming around. And that's just something even early on I would do just use too much of my brother's music, but I was like, oh, it's so great. And, but, but it becomes a crutch. And yeah. at a certain point you, you realize that just hearing the vo- human voice or just the sounds of what's going on in the scene can, can really bring you into the film. Right. Even more so sometimes than music. Mm-hmm. Unless you're doing that and then in an emotional scene where you really want music subconsciously to come in it's there and then you're like oh yeah there we go it's a yeah. perfect balance between the two yeah but yeah i think just film composers in general don't get enough credit especially if they have past however brilliant they their work was it's like past young yeah it's, it's hard because only like a handful of names people in general recognize yeah uh, if I may recognize their music, but not the name, mm-hmm. and it's it tough. Even for my brother, I know, uh, even though he's branched into other things, it's just I I feel like the the sound has to have as much respect as the visual. But we're just so prone, I guess, is a you know, and, uh, I don't really know. It's probably a very deep psychological thing why visual kind of has a predominance. Yeah, but. It's it's funny because there's usually music there all along. It's just probably because it's just of its nature. It's ethereal. It's not something that pretty much we can see, and it's something we take for granted. Um, it's also different because in day to day life, unless we're you know curating our own experience, there isn't like music swells coming in when some emotional yeah. thing happens. <laughs> in, internally, our body may like kind of be producing music, but yeah. You know, we don't, there isn't, so, it's another, I'm kind of going on a tangent here. But. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, I always love talking about film music and the power of music when it comes to film, and you're absolutely right when you say that, you know, not you, the moments when filmmakers decide not to use music uh, is are just as impactful and even just as important as when they decide right. to use music. And the thing is, it's yeah, like, like yeah, the end of ET. There's like the silence, and it's kind of the wind, and you know yeah. people are coming, and I know the ship's there. But then when the ship finally starts to take off, and the and the score comes in, it's just like you get tingles. Yeah. You know, it's just like this hair on the back of your neck sticks up. You're just like, ah, oh, came in at the mm-hmm. right time, and it just it gives you that whole encompassing. Where I was thinking, um, I'm actually going to be going. Uh, on a filming trip starting tomorrow across the country, and I'm going to go to uh, what it's really called Bear Mountain, but it's called like traditionally it's called Devil's Mountain, and that's the mountain in Close Encounters of right. the Third Kind. Yeah. And I'm actually going to go there, and for me, I just think of Close Encounters. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to the place where Close Encounters was <laughs> filmed. And, but I just think about how they use sound, the yeah. communication between the extraterrestrials. And the humans, mm-hmm. that was something that was really interesting. You don't see a lot of that. That was kind of the avant-garde 
Oh yeah. In some ways. I mean, I, um, I, yeah. But yeah, I just really excited him for me to, uh, to go to, even though it's going to be mad, it was stop motion and things like that to go to really powerful, uh, natural locations, whether they're in movies or not is important to me too. like mm-hmm. significance of things. And just saying, just to bring to audiences like, Hey, these things are out there. This world, natural world is an amazing thing. And, um, but there's, there's something where if you go to a place where a movie has been filmed or something like that, there's that added layer. And again, that's that kind of theme I was talking about earlier where cinema has affected reality, yeah. not just the other way around. There's like mm-hmm. forever when I, if I hopefully see that mountain, I'm like close encounter, you know, <laughs> where if that film hadn't existed, it'd be like, wow, that's a really interesting looking yeah. mountain. Yeah, but now it's like all these commutations, and I, I really love that film. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's very fascinating. All these things, mm-hmm. and the great thing is, you can talk about these things all day, and they won't necessarily come across often in the finished film. Yeah, but maybe on some subconscious level, it does, and that's what I find very interesting because you may. I don't know what the running time of Iron Giant was, but it's not very long. No. And no, most, no. most animated most animated films are not, unless it's like um, Anderson's recent one, I Isle Dog, that was quite long. Yeah. But uh, even even that one had 2D in there to kind of fill it out, and other things kind of mm-hmm. had it. But just how much content is goes on and is then distilled into this small little thing in animated film. Yeah. Uh, and then you you kind of wonder, you scratch your head, like, what is this for me to know and a few choice people, or is it somehow distilling some alchemical way into the work? You never know, but it's kind of in the ether, and I wonder after if that kind of comes through into the deeper themes in a work, mm-hmm. or if it's the audiences can kind of pick up on that. Um, it, it's it's kind of a mystery, a kind of a, a fuzzy gray zone, but it is definitely a huge part of filmmaking as a filmmaker that that I kind of chew on because yeah. I feel like I'm just starting to animate about a year half into the production, and uh, since we spoke, but I felt like I've been working on it for like ten years, you know, because mm-hmm. it was in my head and I was going. So I don't really get that with other art forms so yeah. much. Um, that's another credit to, to film that I'm not sure a lot of just general moviegoers really consider. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? I know for us, who actually really study in uh, kind of like a lifeblood cinema. Like we, we do go into it and we think about it, but um, I think, yeah, it must just, if it, if it acts as any agent at all, it must just subconsciously, and emotionally affect people. And sometimes even the music, if you're working with uh, an orchestrator closely, can pick up on that and put that into the music, those intangible mm-hmm. emotions. So that's the way you know, I think you just have to be wise in how you you employ music. Yeah. Yeah, and Brad Bird definitely does a... Uh, he, he always does a wonderful job with his films. I mean, it helps that he's had... Composers like Michael Kamen, like uh, Michael right. Giacchino, to uh, score his films because of the fact that I mean they're 
they're they're ones that are at the in the that are among the best in the business and they understand right. that art form exceptionally well and they understand what's what's important at given times how to score moments in particular times and really it's it's as much as it is it's obviously important for the director to know when to use music but it's also important for mm-hmm. the composer to know how to create music to elicit the responses that the director's going for exactly yeah that's the synergy yeah um and not just people putting their stamp on the work but a real synergistic thing with all the elements that come together i mean that's really what classics films do they have this kind of whole holistic form where everything is kind of intertwined and it just feels balanced and perfect in a way um even if it's not necessarily a perfect quote-unquote film but there's certain there's something there in the Mm -hmm. dna of the film that it's just you wouldn't want it any other way you know and uh, and then it resonates from there but i I, sorry i have to keep going but it's great to talk to you but yeah yeah, eric thank you very much for joining me today it was really good to talk to you you too Okay. All right. God bless you. Have a good one. All right. You too. Bye. Bye. I'd like to thank Eric Leiser for joining me today on the class of 1999. We talked a little bit about Hayao Miyazaki, and we are going to uh, discuss uh, Princess Monoki on this series uh, with a friend of mine who's big into anime in general, and uh, I'm really looking forward to that discussion after my revisit of that movie. We've got a lot more coming on the coming up on the class of 1999 it's basically all i'm planning on doing the rest of the year as far as the podcast goes i hope you uh enjoy what we what i have in touch in store for you you we've still got big directors big films to talk about some of the most important films and some of the most meaningful films to people as well as some films that people don't really discuss as much and uh, I'm looking forward to all of those discussions. Um, join me on www.patreon.com backslash for early access reviews to movies like the, some of the Class of 1999 reviews, um, exclusive uh, blogs and commentary, uh, which I've just started to do, uh, video from Dragon Con, the Atlanta Film Festival, as well as more. And that's it for me. This is Brian Scuttle. Uh, Thank you for joining me on the Sonic Cinema Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our discussion on the Iron Giant and uh, plenty of other topics when it comes to animation, when it comes to 1999 movies. Uh, It was really great to talk to Eric about that. And uh, thank you very much. (laughs) 